so currently there is no uh, breath test for cannabis. There are a number of uh, companies that have been working on this since the earliest days of legalization in, uh, in uh, Colorado and Washington. Um, uh, but there is no breath test uh, device. The, the, the THC molecule um, tends to want to stick in the tissues in the body. It doesn't come out on a person's breath. So very little of it is, is exhaled, unlike alcohol, where you can smell alcohol in a person's breath. This podcast is not a source of legal advice. No two legal cases are the same. Contact an attorney if you require legal assistance. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast. The drug is going to work its way through uh, your liver and your brain, and that negative experience is going to last a lot longer. So even though some of these uh, uh, current dosage forms, uh, at least for smoking, are a lot more concentrated, uh, there are many studies that show that people uh, reduce the amount that they're ingesting and really try to tailor it to the experience they're looking for from the drug. So I think that trial was and error? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. 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 What about urine tests? Are urine tests reliable in any, uh, in any kind of setting? Okay, so you, you mentioned um, the active uh, component of the, the, the drug, which is uh, uh, Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. And of course, now there are other uh, isomers or related compounds. Um, there's a Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol that there's some um, debate about what its legal status is. Um, it's openly sold as being legal in, in malls and in, uh, in uh, smoke shops. What is um, what, when you say delta eight? What do you do you mean, CBC or, or something else? No, so delta eight is is very closely chemically related to delta nine. It's just a, a difference uh, of um, in in one small part of the molecule, one bond in the molecule. Um, it does mean that it doesn't fit as well into the same receptors in the brain as delta nine does. So delta eight has about somewhere around sixty percent of the potency of delta nine, but it. It just means if you take more of it, you'll achieve the same effect. Uh, and then there are it's probably like light beer. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and then there are probably another half dozen different forms of of uh, THC that are now being marketed, being sold. Um, plants are being bred to express more of these uh, uh, different forms. Some of them are chemically modified. Delta eight can be made from uh, CBD. Uh, that's why there's uh, there's so much of it currently. Uh, so, these, so these are the active components of the drug, and we tend to talk about them as the drug. The metabolites are what the body breaks that down into, and uh, some of them are have some activity, usually not as much as the parent uh, drug, and some of them are inactive. The major uh, metabolite of THC is is carboxy THC, and um, carboxy THC is is uh, does accumulate in the urine. Um, and as you indicated, it can stay in the urine for a long time. After uh, smoking marijuana um, uh, with in recreational amounts, your urine may test positive for a couple of days uh, afterwards. So a positive urine test, if you're pulled over, doesn't necessarily mean that you're under the influence of the drug at that time, just because the metabolite is in your, your urine. So the best test really is a t to, to demonstrate uh, active use of the drug is a blood test uh, or an oral fluid test. An oral fluid test, uh, so basically s spitting in a cup. Uh, it's a little more sophisticated than that. There are uh, devices now that will collect. Uh, it's more like a swab 
um, but will collect about a milliliter of, uh, of oral fluid that can be, be tested in labs. Um, and um, there are uh, three or four states now that are, uh, are starting to move away from urine testing over to oral fluid testing to complement blood testing. Is oral fluid testing as reliable as blood testing or less reliable or the same? Um, so it's, it's about the same because it tends to give a positive within the same uh, four to six hour window of uh, use of, uh, of cannabis. Uh, during which a person is, is likely to experience the, the psychoactive effects and the effects that could impact their driving. So um, positivity in blood or in oral fluid, coupled with uh, a, you know, an officer's observations and opinions about impairment, uh, can complement one another. So I was never good at science, so I'm just going to clarify uh, for myself and likely for some of my listeners. If someone has a blood test and they are positive for Delta 8 and or Delta 9, that is a, a, an active metabolite, meaning that person is at that time under the influence of, of cannabis, of marijuana? Well, so it's an active drug. Um, are they under the influence? It's going to depend on a number of factors. Uh, how much of it did they take and what is their uh, tolerance? And... You know how long uh, was the sample collected after uh, the, the the driving that you're 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 that's in question in that investigation or case? But I'm, what I guess my question is: if somebody has a, a delta eight or delta nine in their system, uh, does that preclude them from claiming that uh, that's from when I smoked two weeks ago? Um. Or does it, it certainly it doesn't it certainly doesn't preclude them from claiming that um, as you indicated earlier there are studies in in heavy chronic users of marijuana who stop um, smoking uh, cold turkey basically that their blood can in fact test positive for THC uh, so the active drug uh, for a period sometimes of uh, of a few weeks so that has been documented um, so people in in cases I'm familiar with have certainly claimed that positive result in their blood was a result of um, historical use rather than uh, recent use. And so correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is either an oral sample or oral fluid sample or a blood test has to be complemented with observations of that individual at the time that they're stopped. Is that yes. what you're saying? Okay. Yes. Okay. And that's probably, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's the kind of the gold standard, I would take it, is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about observations and, and observations that uh, these police officers that are drug recognition experts, DREs, um, make of individuals. Um, you know, the, the tests that are done, um, do you, can you comment or have any, any thoughts or opinions on uh, whether or not they are generally uh, reliable and or whether or not they need to be further refined? Uh, so the, the, the DRE protocol has a couple of different components to it. Some are looking for physiological signs um, uh, like changes in blood pressure, changes in pulse, uh, and then the other parts of it are 
uh, tests of um, are, are basically sobriety tests, uh, a little enhanced over what uh, the typical standardized field sobriety test battery looks like. Um, and uh, so they're, they're tests of uh, designed to uh, disclose the presence of impairment in some of these psychomotor skills, like balance, like uh, ability to listen to and follow instructions, uh, coordination um, that are uh, affected by a variety of substances, cannabis and alcohol just being two of them. Uh, so there are a way to, for the officer to assess is somebody's behavior different from what you would expect to see in a sober person. And um, um, of course, the, the tests are, uh, a person's performance in the test, is, again, is going to be a function of how recently they used the drug, how much they used and what their, their tolerance is. Uh, but also alcohol does produce slightly different kinds of effects from marijuana. Um, and uh, some of the effects on performance from marijuana are not as obvious in the, in the field sobriety tests as would be, for example, the effects for alcohol. So it can sometimes be more difficult for uh, a DRE officer to detect uh, impairment using the standardized field sobriety battery uh, than it is to detect a person who's under the influence of, of alcohol. Okay. So, I mean, in, and I read, I read an article that you had uh, written that you sent to me, and um, you, you do note a couple different studies and the, uh, the, the different effects on different people uh, related to ability uh, to drive in comparison to individuals who are under the influence of alcohol. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, it, it seems to me like it just kind of depends. It's going to depend on the person. It's going to depend on the type of cannabis that was ingested, how long prior to driving, uh, et cetera. Is that, is that an accurate layman's assessment of, of basically uh, the effects of marijuana and cannabis on an individual? Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair assessment. I mean, the, the officer's uh, interest is in determining if the person is, is fit to drive. Um, <clears throat> so they're looking for uh, signs that are different from um, uh, people who are not under the influence of, of alcohol or other substances compared to the person that they're, they're evaluating. Um, so there's, there's no um, uh, definitive sign of marijuana intoxication. In the, in the DRE assessment, there are things uh, that the officer uh, will look for including this lack of convergence, um, uh, muscle tremors uh, that might help them differentiate, for example, someone under the influence of alcohol from someone under the influence of, of, uh, of marijuana. Uh, but it's really the, the total picture uh, in terms of what they've seen in the person's driving, their interactions with them when they're talking to them after the stop, and then their performance either in the field sobriety tests or in the, in the DRE exam um, as they reach their opinion about whether they have uh, uh, the probable cause to suspect impairment and, and what might have, have caused that. You, you are a world-renowned forensic toxicologist and you've been studying and, and researching and writing about this issue of cannabis impairment while driving for, for a long time, many, many, many years. Do you have concerns about the legalization of cannabis and and its effect on individuals who are out there driving. I mean, what should a person who makes a decision 
to ingest cannabis uh, do to ensure uh, that they uh, are not going to be driving while impaired, or is it just going to be an individual type of analysis and uh, you know wait wait a certain amount of time? Um, how how are how is the general public supposed to basically self monitor when it's a little bit different, given everything you've said, than the consumption of alcohol? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. The uh, it's it's very hard for somebody, and that's another thing with respect to the the per se levels of five nanograms per mil. With with alcohol, there's plenty of education. There's uh, cards that are often issued by uh, liquor boards that tell you if you drink this many beers, uh, you're in danger of being over the limit. When you when you're ingesting a cannabis product, you you typically don't know how much. THC is in there, so you don't know how much you would have to consume uh, to go over that limit. So it's very hard for the consumer to 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 try to be responsible about their use uh, if they've no way of knowing themselves how what what their blood level is or how close it is uh, to the legal limit. So um, there's definitely evidence uh, as marijuana becomes more uh, available, particularly in states that have uh, recreational uh, use. Uh, that there is an increase in in people who use, uh, and some percentage of them uh, are um, are impaired to the point where it can result in their driving coming to the attention of the police or them being involved in a in a motor vehicle crash. I mean, just a, a small change in a person's reaction time, for example, under the right circumstances, can make the difference between them crashing and not crashing. So because the number of people are uh, who are using the drug is increasing, and some percentage of them are affected in their driving. The, the number of people who are going to be killed in motor vehicle crashes as a result of the effect of the drug, uh, or at least pulled over by the police, is going to increase. Um, in terms of what somebody can do to be a responsible uh, user of, of cannabis, I mentioned that time frame of about four to six hours uh, following recreational use. By that time, the drug has largely left the blood. It's gone into the fatty tissues in the body. Uh, there's still some of it in the brain. But um, people who, who are recreational users of cannabis are typically familiar with the, the experience that the effects have largely uh, worn off after about four to six hours. So uh, the responsible thing to do is not to drive within that time frame and certainly not to drive if you feel you are uh, affected uh, by the drug. Now that that three hour time frame would, I would imagine, only apply if someone is inhaling uh, cannabis, correct? Uh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, yes, because the the if time take frame an edible, of the, it's going to be longer. I would imagine. That's absolutely right. Yeah, but the time uh, curve for for edible consumption can be of the order of uh, twelve to sixteen hours. Understood. What is next or what is on the horizon for cannabis impairment testing? Uh, uh, several people have asked me, I actually was um, at a function yesterday and uh, a question came up as to whether or not there is uh, any type of uh, product being developed similar to an ALCO test that would be able to, that would enable law enforcement uh, or even individuals to to check and see if they they are under the influence of THC such that they shouldn't be driving. 
And and uh, if so, what would, do you think those those type of tests are are ever going to be deemed reliable? Uh, so currently, there is no uh, breath test for cannabis. There are a number of uh, companies that have been working on this since the earliest days of legalization in uh, in uh, Colorado and Washington. Um, uh, but there is no breath test uh, device. The, the, the THC molecule um, tends to want to stick in the tissues in the body. It doesn't come out on a person's breath, so very little of it is, is exhaled, unlike alcohol, where you can smell alcohol in a person's breath. Um, so these technologies do seem to be quite far off if they ever uh, arrive. Um, the interest in having a more rapid uh, chemical test for as to whether someone has consumed cannabis uh, has in part led to the increased interest in oral fluid or saliva drug testing because there are devices that can be taken out into the field and demonstrate that a person has um, recently used uh, a cannabis product. Um, so that, I think, has driven part of the interest in, in those technologies. A number of states have implemented statewide uh, programs or studies uh, for the use of that technology. Um, there isn't really any any technology or, or app, uh, for example, that's that's been demonstrated to have utility for the user in terms of them assessing their their fitness to drive. Uh, there are a few um, apps that have that have claimed that, but none of them have um, have provided evidence that it, it is a good, reliable, uh, and trustworthy indicator for the user themselves. Just to conclude, um, tell us, you know, what what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, how National Medical Services uh, supports private and public entities. You know, you're you're an expert, so I would imagine that uh, you probably deal with examining samples from both prosecutors and and potentially defense attorneys, and then testifying about that. Is that accurate? And if so. How could our listeners uh, get a hold of you if they wanted to utilize uh, your services? Uh, so that uh, yeah, th that that is the job of a forensic toxicologist. We 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 work in a couple of different areas. We work in uh, support of uh, death investigation uh, testing for coroners and medical examiners. NMS Labs is the largest laboratory in the country doing that kind of testing. <clears throat> Uh, and that's that's where we're looking for evidence of either um, deliberate or inadvertent exposure, accidental overdoses that may have caused or contributed to a person's death. Uh, the other area is what we call human performance toxicology, uh, and NMS is uh, toxicologists uh, oversee testing and uh, review and provide opinions on those cases with respect to um, the evidence that's. Uh, 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 available for interpretation in terms of, um, of whether a person may be impaired by their their drug use, and we do in fact do that work for both the defence and the prosecution, and we are happy to review cases for both the defence and prosecution. Uh, that's one of the uh, the benefits of being an independent lab. Understood. And uh, where are you? Where are you located? Well, so we're located in uh, Willow Grove, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, just outside Philadelphia, and uh, you can uh, contact us through our website, which is at uh, www.nmslabs.com. 
Great. And we will also have uh, that, that website and uh, contact information uh, at the bottom of the uh, episode page for this episode on NJ Criminal Podcast. Dr. Logan, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to explain this to me and to our listeners. It is certainly uh, an extremely important topic for uh, attorneys, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, and and certainly for uh, lay individuals uh, to have this type of, of knowledge and know how cannabis uh, does, in fact, affect an individual's uh, body and and their ability to safely operate a motor vehicle. So thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this series. Don't forget to subscribe, because before you know it, we'll be back with another great conversation. If you sell by referral, relationship building, and network marketing, pick a time and let's talk about podcasting. You might be surprised. When done correctly, all you have to do is have the conversations. If you're interested in starting a podcast, visit the contact page at njcriminalpodcast.com and send Meg a message. She'd love to discuss your legal podcast.